I read a little book recently um, by a man named Alan Jacobs called How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. Whew! Very relevant book um, right now. And in the book, Jacobs describes what he calls um, the RCO, that is the repugnant cultural other, meaning the person who has different beliefs and views and uh, a life different from yours, whom you consider repugnant because of those views and beliefs. Okay, big one, Democrats and Republicans, right? That's the, that's the huge one. Let's get it on the table. And um, Jacobs points out that actually most people today see others with whom they disagree as RCOs, as the repugnant cultural other. And it's part of the world, he says, part of the reason our world is so angrily divided is because we see each other this way. Here's what he says. The cold, divisive logic of the RCO impoverishes us, all of us, and brings us closer to that primitive state that the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the war of every man against every man. Uh, Last year, the University of California, Berkeley, spent $600,000 on security for a single event to protect an unpopular conservative speaker at the campus. $600,000. People not getting along costs a lot of money. And I'm not attacking the the liberal student body at the University of Berkeley because the conservative student body is just as bad in their aggression towards the other side. They relish the martyr mentality at these kinds of events. But this is just an example. This is just a representative image of how divided and angry and hostile our society has become. So here's a question. Is it possible for a community of people to exist in harmony, not not only tolerating each other, but embracing each other and working together for the common good? And if so, how is that possible? Because it seems like something our society likes idealistically, but can never get there. Well, the Christian scriptures make the bold claim that the church of Jesus Christ is to be that community. And it is to be a witness to the world by being that kind of community. We have a beautiful image of this um, in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to follow along in your bulletin, we're going to spend a little bit of time there today. And what Paul writes to the Ephesians, we're going to be just in the first few verses today. And this is what Paul says. He's writing from prisoner and he says, um, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let's just stop there, right, for a minute. Um, He's reminding us that we are called into this community, right? It's not like a membership club that we sign up for. We're actually called into it by God and incorporated into it by God. Life as a member in the church of Christ comes with great privilege, but it also comes with great responsibility, as we'll see in just a minute. Um, What Paul is doing here by reminding us that we're actually called into this, he's telling us what is about to follow, what I'm about to say is not just mere moral advice, it's actually an appeal to the kind of life that is a response to God's call on each of us into his community, the church. So here's what he says about how we should be, his people. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. All right, let's take those um, three, the three big ones here that we should look at for just a minute. So um, humility, what is humility? Well, hum- humility comes from a word that, a Latin word that means ground or earth. So it means very lowly. So humility is to be lowly minded. 
versus being high-minded, right? Thinking very highly of yourself, always comparing yourself to others and seeing them as a little bit lower than you, right? That's humility. Um, in the ancient Greco-Roman world in which uh, this letter was written, humility was actually not seen as virtuous because it was associated with servility and servitude. And so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very popular. And so it was very countercultural that the Christian, the early Christians started preaching that humility was very important, right? Why? Because they followed a Lord who demonstrated utter humility. Um, and humility is also not very popular in our, it's not very, it doesn't seem to be very uh, virtuous or uh, popular in our divided world either today. But it should be a trademark of followers of Jesus. It should be a trademark. Gentleness. Well, gentleness, what's that? It's much like humility, actually. Um, but I want to read you, somebody else has, has commented on it, a Bible scholar, and it's far better than what I could say about it. But here's how he puts it. He really gets at what gentleness is. He says, it involves the courtesy, considerateness, and willingness to waive one's rights that come from seeking the common good without being concerned for personal reputation or gain. Imagine what a community would look like if this ha- if everybody did this, right? If everybody waived their rights and their personal desires for the sake of the common good. Just imagine what that might look like. Then he goes on and he mentions patience. Um, patience literally means to be long-tempered versus what? Being short-tempered, which is most of us, probably. Um, patience makes allowance for the shortcomings of others. Okay, it makes allowance for the shortcomings of others. It's not quick to find faults. It's not quick to grumble or complain about others because they're doing what I don't like. And patience is long-tempered. Having, here's what this tells us. Having a short fuse is literally ungodly. Now, here's why. Because all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we're told God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. He's patient. Then Paul moves on to this very, very big thing, and he says, bearing with one another. This is, um, we use the word forbearance. That's what he's getting at here, the word forbearance. If interpreted literally, it means something like to hold oneself up under the weight of another. To hold oneself up. So here's the imagery. Think of um, two soldiers who are in battle, and they both become wounded, and they're hobbling um, arm in arm together to the medic tent, Right? Now, they're getting there um, because they're supporting each other, but they're both inconvenienced by the other person, right, in their wounds. That is an image that is perfect for followers of Jesus who are wobbling, sometimes stumbling our way to the heavenly city alongside each other, bearing with one another's faults and sins. But the tragic reality is, is that actually what we are more likely to do is shoot our fellow soldiers so that we don't have to deal with the inconvenient reality of their faults and their sins. This is what happens every time, every time we gossip. Every time we drag someone's name through the mud. Every time we speak negatively about somebody behind their back. This is what happens. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Because to do that, to do that is to say, I'd rather destroy your reputation than have to deal with you in a Christ-like way and deal with what bothers me about you in a Christ-like way. So now, here's what Paul does. He adds this um, little line, in love, to the end of this, bearing with one another in love. And that's a very intentional because he's telling us that bearing with one another is not just a kind of passive resignation. Oh, well, I'll tolerate being around them so long as they don't X, Y, or Z bother me, right? It's not just a passive resignation. Um, bearing with one another in love is an active movement 
towards relationship with someone despite what drives you crazy about them. I'm going to say that, say that again. It's an active movement towards relation with someone despite what drives you crazy about them. All right, let's be honest. There's things for all of us about others in this room that probably drive us crazy. But bearing with one another in love means we say, I love you. You're my brother and sister in Christ, and I'm going to do life with you. Jacob says this in his book. He says, it's when our forbearance fails that the social fabric tears. And I would say this, it's when our forbearance fails that the body of Christ tears. So let me ask you this. Are there people that you avoid at the peace? Are there people in the congregation that you avoid in the parish hall at community events? And what would it look like to move towards relationship, bearing with them in love? I'll always remember this line from a poem that there's a bishop visiting from the UK who read some of his poetry at an event here in the diocese a couple years ago. And I always remember this one line. He said, you only love the father as much as you love your worst enemy. Yeah. Could have just said that for the sermon. (laughs) Now, here's a question. What actually makes any of this unique or Christian? Because if you just stopped right here, really you could get this from any number of religions or worldviews, the idea of being humble and gentle and patient and um, uh, peaceable with other people. So what is it about this that's any different than that? Well, we have to read on. Paul goes on and and, uh, says this. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, what's the unity of the spirit? Here's what he's saying. Every member of Christ's church has a union with every other member that is affected by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Okay, this, that's the, that unity is the ground of the church's existence, the Holy Spirit that dwells in each and every one of us. It's like a glue that binds us together, okay? Now, look at the person to your left. Look at the person to your right. You all over here, look at all these people over here, and you look at all these people over here, okay? You are united to each other in a way that actually runs deeper than the bond between your biological family members, between your friends, between your coworkers. It is nothing short of a miracle. Now, Paul goes on and says this. There's one body and one spirit Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He really likes ones. But we don't have time to go through all these. But there's three, really briefly, that we should talk about. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism, because they all fit together. There's one Lord of heaven and earth, he's saying, and that is Jesus. There's one faith, and that is the confessed faith of the church in her crucified Savior. And there is one baptism. Now, he's not saying there's just one mode, okay? There's not one particular specific way to do it. So whether you're dipped or dabbed or dunked or however it happens to you, it is through these sacramental waters that we become knit together in an unbreakable unity. And it's through baptism that we get to share in the life of Jesus. This, we get to enjoy his status with the Heavenly Father. And here's how we become enabled to live with humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and all of that. Because before having him, we were incapable, but Jesus perfectly embodied all of these things because we couldn't. Let's think about it. A life worthy of the calling. He lived a life worthy of his calling, perfectly free from sin, perfectly free from selfishness. He practiced all humility and gentleness. He did not retaliate even against his torturers and his killers. 
he waived his rights as the divine son of God for the sake of the common good so that humanity could be forgiven of her sins. He bore with others in love. He was patient with his bumbling disciples. Can you imagine having to live and work with Peter for three or four four years? (laughs) He was forgiving even of those who denied him. And he didn't, this is important, he didn't simply tolerate sinners. He actively moved towards relationship by sharing meals with them and healing their diseases and taking time to listen to them and speak into their lives. And in confessing the one Lord, the one faith, and being submerged in the baptisms of the the waters of the one baptism, the very life of Jesus comes to indwell us. It flows towards us and comes to indwell us and begins to work in and through us out into the world. That's what happens. And it's going to happen today in a few minutes. And it's going to be beautiful. But we must never forget, friends, why this is possible. We cannot forget why all of this is possible. This is the most important thing that I'm going to talk about today. You see, Jesus Christ died so that we could be forgiven and reconciled with our holy heavenly father. And we needed that forgiveness precisely because we could not practice the things that make for a unified, peaceful community. This is why every other system in the world of trying to be good and get along always fails. Because there's a deeper problem than just behavior. It's that our sinful nature represses humility and thrives on pride. It rejects gentleness for harshness. It prefers to judge rather than to bear with others. As the old confession from our 1928 prayer book put it very bluntly, there is no health in us. And here's how the church of Jesus Christ becomes that peaceable community that shows the world how to love. Because if the fact that Jesus Christ died for you, for you personally, takes a hold of your heart, you'll say, I want to act towards others how my Lord acted towards me. With gentleness, with forgiveness, laying down his own life for my sake. St. John wrote this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, because you've been loved at such great cost, you'll be enabled to love in a way that costs you. Your pride, your reputation, your earthly success, maybe everything. And when people of all shapes and sizes and colors and cultures receive the forgiveness of sins and the power of the the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in their hearts, a peaceable society becomes possible. And we call it the church. You see, the cross of Jesus is the only thing that makes such a society possible. Paul was writing a letter to uh, his friend Titus, and he said, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all sin and purify for himself a people of his own who are eager to do good. You see, out of the cross comes a new community of people. One author commenting on this verse writes this, thus the very purpose of his self-giving on the cross was not just to save isolated individuals, but to create a new community whose members would belong to him, love one another, and eagerly serve the world. That's our calling, friends. And this, this is actually how we lead people to the cross. 
We live in such a way that the world sees people who aren't just being nice to each other, but whose hearts have been changed by the living God. Republicans who can look at Democrats and say, hey, I can do life with you. Husbands and wives who can look at each other and say, I'm willing to waive my rights and personal preferences to make our home a place of love and forgiveness. Former enemies who can look at each other and say, I'm willing to forgive you and to follow Jesus together. I want to imagine with you what might happen to our divided world if the church of Jesus Christ started to be the church of Jesus Christ and started to act as he did, following his command to love one another as I have loved you. And I desperately want to see us as a community here at Good Shepherd. As St. Paul says, come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your patience and your gentleness and your forbearance were demonstrated on the cross of your Son. You showed us that on our own, we had no hope of getting better at loving each other. So you sent your Son to die for us in the ultimate act of love, to wipe away all of the ugliness in our hearts that caused us to ignore you and to ignore your image in our fellow human beings. Where we've hindered that work, that you've wanted to do in our hearts, we ask forgiveness. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, and do the work in us that will enable us to forgive as we have been forgiven and to love as you have loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.